2 Timothy chapter 3, 6 to 9, that is our text this evening. This is part 9. Part 9 of our study through the book of 2 Timothy begins right now. And if for whatever reason you are totally out of the loop and you have missed the first eight parts, fret not. This is what you need to know. The Apostle Paul is writing this story. Paul is writing this story sometime between 64 and 67 A.D., from Rome. This is his second Roman imprisonment. And unlike his first Roman imprisonment, which occurred between 60 and 62 AD, which was really more of a house arrest, here now in his second Roman imprisonment, 64-67 AD, he is in chains. He is in a Roman jail cell. And this has often been referred to as Paul's last will and testament, for shortly at the conclusion of this letter, he will be killed for his faith. And he writes this letter to Timothy, a young man he is very close with, a young man that he has personally mentored and discipled and poured into. Timothy at this point is a pastor, a young pastor in the ancient church in Ephesus, which is modern-day Western Turkey. And he writes this letter to Timothy. If, If you're taking notes, this theme, we say it all the time, to persevere in his faith. That's That's really the theme of this letter. It's about persevering in the faith, no matter how difficult it may get, no matter how inconvenient it may get, to, to keep going. That's that's what he's calling Timothy to do. And, and it's just amazing that he's encouraging him in this way, considering his own circumstances are just so discouraging. I mean, not only is he in this Roman jail cell, essentially on death row, but many of the people he's cared deeply for have left him. They've abandoned him. We know that from chapter 1, verse 15, Phygelus and Hermogenes among just some who just walked out on him. And yet he's encouraging Timothy to keep going. It seems at this point that Timothy's faith may be waning a bit, a bit. It, maybe his zeal for the Lord is not what it, it once was or at a different point, and that Often is true of us in different seasons of life. We hit highs, we hit lows, but the point is we need to keep going. We need to keep persevering in our faith, in following Jesus. And so he calls him, Timothy, share in suffering. Share in suffering as a good soldier. Be as a, as an athlete who, who works hard and trains and competes. Be like the hardworking farmer. The hardworking farmer has got to work his tail off no matter whether he feels motivated, no matter whether it works well with his schedule or anything else because the seasons are going to change. Be like those guys. And then he tells Timothy, Timothy, oh, by the way, even if you're treated like garbage, even if you're treated like a criminal, even if they kill you, it's okay. Because you will live and reign with Christ forever. You will live and reign with Him forever. So just keep going, Timothy. Keep going. Well, as we saw halfway through chapter 2, these two bad guys are introduced into the story, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and they're teaching and saying things that are really undercutting that future hope of resurrection that Paul had encouraged Timothy to remember, saying that any such hope for for believers, yeah, that's not going to happen. And as you can imagine, that's upsetting to some people's faith to find out that if I die, there's no hope of a future resurrection. That's what Hymenaeus and Philetus are saying. So Paul's got to deal with this issue. He's got to deal with this issue, and he he tells Timothy to admonish many of the people there in his church in Ephesus. 
to strive to be like vessels of gold and silver, honorable vessels, useful to the master. That some of these people, they need to cleanse themselves from these dishonorable teachings that have been permeating their minds and, and drawing them, excuse me, drawing them away from God. He tells them to, to flee youthful passions, this idea of anything that may get in their way to cause as a stumbling block. And then reminds them that we have to correct the opponents with gentleness. Oh, by the way, God is ultimately the only one who can grant repentance. But we have a, a role, we see human responsibility collide with the sovereignty of God like a supernova, where our role is to correct the opponents with gentleness. Our role is to put truth in place, to call people to repent, but ultimately, at the end of the day, God and God alone grants repentance. And then as we saw last week, verses 1 to 5, there's a, a list of a lot of terrible things that are going on. Just terrible things. And then we find out at the end of the story, really the section in verse 5, that these are people within the church that are manifesting these terrible, terrible things on the list. And he says, avoid such people. And that's really where we come up to. That's it's kind of my introduction to today and how we're really at this place. And I told the people in small group, those of you who were there, I didn't feel like I did a very good job articulating the end of verse 5. I didn't spend enough quality time. And this was all that we seemed to talk about at small group this week. The idea in verse 5 that we are to avoid such people. For many of us, that doesn't sound very nice. So how do we, how do we understand this, right? There's this terrible list, and a lot of people are like, well, if I'm being honest, I'm guilty of some of these things in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3. Do I need to avoid myself? So how do we understand that? We need to understand that. How do we understand this idea of avoiding such people? I think how we are to understand this in this phrase, avoid such people, this is a call, or at least a potential call for excommunication and or church discipline. And for many of us, now I need to do some more explaining. Because if you were like me and grew up, vacation Bible school, in a good Baptist church, or wherever else, Protestant upbringing, the idea of church discipline and our excommunication might be a foreign concept. You say, excommunication, that's a Catholic thing, right? Because the idea of church discipline doesn't get taught. This is awkward. Or, well, you know, that person, they give a lot of money to the church, so we can just sweep that under the rug. Or they're good buddies. They go golfing with the leaders of the pastors. So we don't need to really deal with this, which is a problem, because when we come across verse 5 that says, avoid such people, we don't know what to do with that. We say, well, the Paul's kind of being mean right now. How do we, how do we understand this? How do we understand this, especially because in chapter 2 he says, correct the opponents with gentleness. Well, how do we correct the opponents with gentleness if we're at the same time called to avoid such people? So let's, let's talk this through. Let's make sense of this right now. We've got to avoid such people. So how do we, how do we understand this? Well, first and foremost, I think there is an emotional block, an emotional barrier, which when we read this, sometimes it doesn't set well with us. Uh, that's, it's not a, a normal thing. You come to many passages of Scripture, uh, you'll have an emotional barrier. I mean, read Romans 9. I mean, many people have cried their eyes out after reading that. It's upsetting, right? There's this emotional something that just doesn't set well with us when we come across certain parts of Scripture that don't necessarily click with our minds. So we say, well, how do we correct the opponents with gentleness? There's this almost uh, blockage with chapter 2, 24, 26, 
and the call to avoid such people. So how are we to correct the opponents if we're avoiding them? Well, I think first and foremost, there's a, there's an assumption, right? There's the assumption that such opponents are willing to be corrected in the first place. Oftentimes, and this isn't a dating sermon at all, but oftentimes, you know, you'll hear things like that, but if I break up with him, he won't have any Christian friends, right? Which is problematic because like, what, why are you dating him in the first place? If I, if, if, you know, if I draw some separation, some boundaries, she won't have any Christian friends. Um, okay, like, there's some dysfunctional, I think, sometimes thinking when it comes to these sorts of things that we need to deal with. No, we are to correct the opponents with gentleness, right? We say, listen, like, little Joey, whatever, you need to repent. You need to stop doing these things. You gotta stop. You call them to repentance, right? In doing that, you are correcting the opponents of gentleness. You are placing truth in their way. Oh, by the way, that's what, that's what we're called to do, right? This is our responsibility. Correct the opponents of gentleness. Place truth in their way with the hope that God, that God grants a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So we have that responsibility. And it seems, though, now that we're in chapter 3, that these people are like, nope, forget that. Right? Because here's the issue. If we're being honest, I'm sure at some point or another, we've, we've been guilty, maybe even this week, of some of the things on, on chapter 3, 1 to 5. What you need to understand is that when I use the word excommunication, when I use the word church discipline, this is in regards to those who make a practice of sinning. I believe that would be the right Phrase, First John uses. This is, here's a key word, unrepentant sin. Avoid such people, we have to avoid ourselves. Okay, so, so what is it? Well, in this context, it's those who make a practice of sinning. Those who are in unrepentant sin. This is what I think a good example of what it looks like. And I'll use sexual immorality because it's just a, always a, a helpful illustration because it's so prevalent. The guy comes to me. Both of these are true stories. Guy comes to me, he says, Joe, me and my girlfriend, we're really struggling with purity. Like, we keep falling, and I don't want to fall, and I hate how I feel, and I feel sick, and I don't want to sin, and I know it's sin, and I want to stop, and I need help, I need accountability. And the guy who says, Joe, I got it, right? I knew you were going to bring this up. I knew you were going to bring this up. The temptation's too strong. And I've worked things out with God. I've come to an understanding, right? I'm, I'm married. We're, no, you're not. Like, we're married in our hearts. No, you're not. But whatever. Well, we're going to get married. Whatever. So, so it's okay. Like, so she'll be staying the night over at my house, okay? She'll be, she'll, she's going to move in with me. This is just going to happen. I appreciate if you don't bring this up again. Now, I think those are, those are two good examples. I think the latter would be unrepentant sin, right? I don't want to repent. And you apply that to this list, right? The call to avoid such people is not the, the very first person who decides to be arrogant, right? But rather this continuous unrepentant behavior that characterizes the call to avoid such people. That's how we have to understand that. I think someone asked in small group, well, if we're avoiding such people, does that mean I can't text them? I'm like, what are the practical implications of this? I want to know. So do I. 
Once again, I think this is just problematic due to the biblical illiteracy within many of our churches in America. We just we don't talk about this. We don't talk about it because we don't do it, and we don't do it because it's awkward and uncomfortable. Um, it is awkward and uncomfortable. And so, let's see some illustrations. First, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 12, and 13 lends us one of the, the, the best illustrations. I'll, I'll paraphrase the story, but in 1 Corinthians 5, you've got this guy, okay, in the church in Corinth. He's hooking up with his stepmom. When I say he's hooking up with his stepmom, he's having sex with his stepmom. Sorry to, for the paid TV language, but that's what's happening here, okay? That's, that's happening here. And apparently, everybody in Corinth knows about it. They're like, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, he was at that service today. We were, we were taking, we we're in the same communion line. That guy, yeah, everybody knows about it. Paul is so upset. Like, how can this be? You guys all know you guys haven't done anything at all about this? Why not? So he says, God judges those outside the church. Purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. Here's the, the basis for excommunication. Here's the basis for church discipline. Purge the evil person from among you. You look at uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 17. It's a well-known passage. Many of you probably have done Matthew 18 maybe in the last month or two. If your brother sins against you, there's some issue, you go and talk to them. This is the anti-gossip uh, passage to resolve conflict. Brother sins, you go and talk to him. Okay? They still don't listen to you? Well, you go, you get your buddy, you, the two of you go and talk to that person. They still don't listen. Well, then you go and tell it to the church. You go and tell it to the church at that point. Now, and normally we never get to that point because normally it's already, it's resolved. Like you go and talk to the person, right? You tell, you tell your roommate, listen, like, what are you doing having your boyfriend come over and spend the night at the house each week? I don't care whether or not you're having sex, like, Mom, like, that's foolish. And I'd say that's sinful. Like, you're giving not a very good appearance. Right? And normally what happens is they listen, and you've won your brother, you've won your sister. Okay? Usually you don't have to escalate all the way up where you get another friend, you go and talk to them, where you, then at that point you go and you get the leaders of the church, they, they go and talk. But then there's further instructions. And if they still refuse to listen, let them be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, let them be as a Gentile tax collector. Now, part of the problem, this has become so complicated, is because go and tell it to the church. And you ask the question, well, who's that? Go and tell it. Well, I'm not a part of a church. Well, there's one problem already that you should consider, too. Well, well I church hop so often. I mean, which one? Do I go and tell it to Jonathan Falwell? Do I go and tell it to Joel Osteen? Do I? No. Do I go and tell <laughs> Do I go and tell it to Joe Decreon? Like that's 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 another that's a whole other issue. And this isn't even about church membership right now. See, church membership seeks to define who's in and who's just a regular visitor. In fact, I would say, apart from defining who's a part of the church versus who's just a regular visitor, you can't do Matthew 18. You can't do 1 Corinthians 5, right? Purge the evil person from among you. Well, I'm not among you, I'm just a regular visitor. That's what someone would say, and they'd probably be right. So this, this is where it gets really murky. But go and tell it to the church, and hopefully you are a part of a church, not just a regular visitor. Okay. Well, then what? Well, if they still don't listen, let them be as a Gentile and tax collector. 
that question small group came up. So what do I do if that person, right, is in that situation, right? We're at that verse 5, chapter 3, like crossroads. I'm avoiding such people. What does that look like? What if they text me? Then what? Well, I'd probably be polite enough and say, hey, I, I got your text, but I want to let you know, like, no, I, I can't hang out with you right now. Until you repent of your sins, I, I can't, I can't hang out with you. I can't, yeah, I can't do that. What it would look like practically at that point, it would look like me telling the person, listen, you're welcome to come here to service on Sundays, but I'm not knowingly going to serve you communion. I can't. You're not welcome to come to small group over at my house. I know we all went bowling Friday night or there's a group. You, you're not welcome to come bowling Friday night. You're not welcome. Oh, you want to kick it and play Madden at my house with me and Caleb? Sorry, you can't. Like, uh, It's not going to be business as usual anymore. Let them be as a Gentile and tax collector. Purge the evil person from among you. You say, that's mean. I say, no, it's not. I say, that's the most loving thing you can possibly do. Because most people, you know what they'd rather do? They'd rather not, when we come to this verse, verse 5, avoid such people, they say, that's just harsh. I can do that. That's unloving. You want to know what the most unloving thing is? Not doing anything. Not obeying Paul. Because in essence, what you're doing is you're holding their hand and literally walking them to the gates of hell. That's what you're doing. That's exactly what you're doing. You're holding their hand and walking them into the gates of hell. See, the goal in avoiding such people the goal in church discipline, the goal in excommunication, right? Purge the evil person from among you is that they feel the gravity and the weight of their sin. That they're broken over their sin. That God perhaps grants a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they come back in. That reconciliation and restoration takes place. I remember the story of John Piper early on in his ministry. He was counseling this woman she was having an affair, and he said, are you going to go meet up with that guy this weekend? She's like, well, I really don't know. And he looked at her. He said, if you continue to do this, if you continue to meet up with this guy, you will go to hell. Every Christmas, he gets a card from her. And she thanks him for having the courage to say to her with so many other people, didn't have the courage to do. Why? Because avoiding such people is awkward. That's awkward. That's uncomfortable. I don't avoid such people. And as I said, understand this, right? It's not like I go to Panda Express and I see one of the church members there and he rings up my order. David gets the order wrong. <laughs> All right, well, that's enough, right? And I'm avoiding such people now. There's, there's a difference, right? There's, there's a difference. Avoiding such people in this context, as we already said, well, I'm probably guilty of everything on the list. There's a difference between unrepentant sin, right? And that, that's what I want you to see, like the illustration. The guy who, who's just struggling, he's torn up, and he's grieved over his sin. He, he doesn't want to do it. And the guy who basically says, I'm doing it. She's staying over at my house. Stop talking to me about this. There's a difference, right? This is applied to unrepentant sin, continual sin. Why? Because that's the most loving thing that you can possibly do for such a person. Avoid such people. This is in regards to unrepentant sin. This is what we call church discipline. And oh, by the way, there's a difference between church discipline and discipline. Discipline happens. There's probably not a year that discipline within the church doesn't happen. It usually, at, 
It's usually handled in a one-to-one -one ratio, and no one ever knows about it. It's handled discreetly and, and privately. There's a difference, right? Church discipline is handled and, and, and brought up when it comes to unrepentant sin. And you need to understand that. Like, this is how serious this is. Because right now, at this juncture, I don't know whether this person is in a state of prodigal drifting from God or whether they're not even saved in the first place. Like, this isn't a matter of I need to rededicate my life. This is, I just need to repent. I need to turn to God. I need to bow the knee. So that's, that's what we're up against. I know it didn't settle well with many of you guys, but hopefully that clarifies it a little bit better. It's these sorts of people that we need to avoid for their own benefit. Once, once again, the, the goal is reconciliation. The goal is restoration. The goal is them coming to the authority of Jesus Christ. And for failure to do this, throw up verse 6. For among them, among these people we need to be avoiding, are those who creep into households and capture weak women. The, the word creep here carries the idea of stealth, going in undetected. They've come into homes under false pretenses, trying to gain and seize control. And they have. And they've captured weak women. The, the word weak women literally means silly women or, or little women in the original language. It, these are, these are women here at Timothy's church who are, who are weak in the sense that they are easily deceived. They are prone to temptation. The, their weakness is not primarily intellectual, as we'll see in a moment, but rather primarily moral. We talked about ultimately the goal in avoiding such people is for their own benefit, that they feel the gravity and weight of their sin. But oh, by the way, here's the, the problem by not doing it. By not doing it, you're allowing wolves into the flock. That's what you're doing. Right? So, so picture, right? Maybe this, maybe there's this gal who just got out of this really abusive relationship or she's she's maybe in drug rehab or she's she's a new christian in the church or maybe she's not we don't even know if she's a christian and and she is just she's trying to persevere in the faith because that's what the story is about she's trying to persevere she's trying to love jesus she's trying to worship jesus she's trying to serve jesus and now you've got these cats coming in these hymenaeus and philetus types of people and they're preying on those sorts of people. I've seen it before. Gosh, I remember, I remember my one roommate at Liberty. I mean, this was a bad, bad dude. He'd bragged all the guys about how many dozens and dozens and dozens of, of conquests that he had. And I remember him like preying on the, on the girls, like in the sister dorm and, and, and he did. And he did. I, when I read this, I was like, I, I literally thought of this guy. For those of you who still think that avoiding such people sounds mean, here's the other reality. By failing to deal with these wolves in sheep's clothing, now you've created another problem for such people. Right? You're not protecting these people anymore. These people who, oh, by the way, they, the people we're avoiding are the same people who, they give the appearance of godliness. They give the appearance, like, it's not like, hey, I'm not a Christian, like, what you get, what you see is what you get. This is like, Hey, like, I am a Christian. Hmm, really? Like, I don't, I don't see it. They come in under false pretenses to capture such weak women burdened with sins. 
Literally, they're overwhelmed by the weight of their sins. They've been heaped up. It's an expression. This burden is this expression of this culmination of sins. They're trying to maybe get get back on track, whatever. They're in the church, and these, these people who need to be avoided, they haven't been dealt with, they haven't been avoided, and they're coming, and they're praying on them. These weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Back in chapter 222, this was, I don't know, two sermons ago, Paul paints this picture. We've got honorable vessels. We've got dishonorable vessels. We've got honorable vessels of gold and silver, useful to the master. Useful, right? I want to be a useful vessel to the master. I'm be like, oh, Joe Decreon, useful. Not Joe Decreon, useless. I don't want... I don't want God to think that of me. I want to strive to please God. I want to strive to please our master, just as the good soldier, willing to share in suffering. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I want to please God. Then we have these dishonorable vessels of wood and clay, right? Perhaps these, these Christians who are just coasting, they're just comfortable, just warm in a pew, nothing more. He tells them that you need to cleanse yourself from the dishonorable things that maybe you've you've heard, you've bought into by Hymenaeus and Philetus that's created this spiritual apathy where you're just comfortable at this place in your Christian faith. You're comfortable just warming a pew, whatever. You need to cleanse yourself from those things. You need to get back on track. Oh, by the way, chapter 222, you need to flee youthful passions. And as we said, youthful passions is an expression that can refer to any sort of youthful, immature thing that hinders you from pursuing Christ. I don't care whether it's you can't wake up for your 3 p.m. class or you've got too much homework or too much going on at work or, or the home. Like I would say anything that keeps you from God is a youthful passion, right? There's, well, there's this reason, right? There's this reason I don't have enough time to pray. Youthful passion, whatever that is. Well, there's this, the reason I haven't been able to get into the Word is that's youthful passion. Well, I don't have time to, 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 to be a part of the church, to gather with the church. Why? What's that reason? Youthful passion. I would say anything that keeps you from persevering in the faith is a youthful passion that causes you a hindrance. You might not want to come to terms with that because if you come to terms with that and you acknowledge what I'm saying is true, then you've got to take responsibility. And you can't just, you know, make an excuse. That's between you and God. But here's my point. If you refuse to flee youthful passions... If you refuse to flee youthful passions, you will inevitably be led away by them. You will. If you refuse to flee from the youthful, immature things, you will eventually be led away by them. Deal with them. If you need to deal with them, deal with them. Don't make excuses for why you'll deal with them later. Deal with them now, guys. Deal them now. Flee now from those things. For failure to do that will inevitably lead you to be led away by them. These women, always learning. Like, it's not intellectual issue here. They're always learning. And they're never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's not like, I don't have enough Bible verses memorized issue. I don't know enough Bible stories. Like, intellectually, it's, it's not a lack of knowledge. They're, they're like forever getting information. Rather, the problem is, is that they can't recognize the truth when they saw it. 
2 Timothy 2.25, that God may perhaps grant them a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. I mean, they could sit in the class with whatever your favorite theologian is for a week and still be at this point. It's not for lack of information that, that they're here, that they're stuck, that they're spinning their wheels. They need God to decisively act and grant that heart of repentance. All the while, we are correcting the opponents of gentleness. We are putting truth in place. We're calling them to repent, even though we acknowledge and know and understand that God and God alone grants repentance, that they can't make it happen, and I can't make it for them happen. They're always learning, but that's the problem. They they can't get beyond just learning. They're, They're spiritually blind. You tell me how a physically blind person decides to make themselves see. Right? Oh, okay, I'm going to see now. That doesn't happen. That's why Paul uses the imagery in 2 Corinthians 4.4. They can't. He uses the imagery of a dead person in Ephesians 2. Right? How does a dead person decide to make themselves alive? They don't. That's the point. Like, God alone does! And he receives all glory for it when it happens, when the miracle happens, when our eyes are open, right? When we're made alive. When we come to our senses. They're always learning. Information's not the issue. It's beyond that. And we continue, verse 8, Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. I came across this verse... And what I expected did not take place. I expected to find a link with some Old Testament story regarding Moses. And then I found out that these guys, Janice and Jambres, who oppose Moses, they're not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. I thought that was interesting. I thought, oh, they're probably just maybe in like one or two verses, some obscure reference to back, go back where Moses is listed in the Old Testament. They're actually not mentioned anywhere at all in Scripture. What we have here is extra biblical sources that show us exactly who these guys are. Apparently, according to extra biblical Jewish sources, they were two of Pharaoh's magicians, Exodus 7:11 and 9:11. They were they were according to, to Jewish literature, Janus and Jambres were two of Pharaoh's magicians who tried to demonstrate that they could work miracles as effectively as Moses. And Jewish tradition holds that they actually pretended to convert to Judaism in order ultimately to undercut Moses in this divine assignment he had to lead Israel out of Egypt. And that they, Janice and Jambres, were, were right on the front lines of being involved in the incident with the golden calf in Exodus 34, and that they were among the group of people slaughtered with the idolaters. The point is, is he characterizes the current issue and situation there in Ephesus among these people who need to be avoided, very much like Janus and Jambres, men who oppose the truth. Right? What's our, what's our role? 2 Timothy 2, 24, 26, correct the opponents of gentleness. Our, our role is to, to put the truth in place. Our, our, our role is to call people to repentance. When we call, like, 
but I'm calling them to do something that they ultimately can't do unless God first acts. Yes, I know. And in doing that, we're placing truth in front of them. So when God acts, there it is. We're correcting the opponents with gentleness, but what's the problem? They oppose it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to come to terms with it. They, they suppress the truth about God and they exchange it for a lie. Because if they come to terms with it, well, then they got to take ownership. Then they got to take responsibility. They don't want it. They oppose the truth. Just like these people in Timothy's church. Right? These wolves in sheep's clothing. Who come in, creep in, prey on other people, prey on these weak women. They give off this super Christian appearance. There's nothing Christian about them at all. They have more in common with the pagans in Ephesus than anything else. They're just, they're just faking it. Janice and Jambres, they oppose the truth. That's why I think we've gotten to the point where he says avoid such people. Why? Because we've already gone through correcting them and they refuse to repent. Janus and Jambres, just as they oppose Moses. So these men, Timothy, in your church, they're opposing the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. That it, clear indicator here. They're not Christians at all. Oh, I, I suppose they, right? They profess to know God like so many people today. I'm a Christian. Man, you train a parrot, he could probably say that. I'm a Christian, right? But in a Titus 1.16 way, they profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions. Just like Janus and Jambres, just like these people, these wolves in Timothy's church. They are disqualified regarding the faith. Verse 9, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to them will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. They're not going to get very far. Here's the good news. The outcome is certain, and victory already belongs to Christ. Victory already belongs to Christ. Victory already belongs to the church for the firm foundation which bears the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. It will stand. That the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. That's the good news. Let me give you some good news. The good news is that victory is already certain. Victory belongs to Christ and His church in the wake of all this just filthiness coming in and contaminating things. That's the good news. I'm thankful for that. But here's the issue. Lest we slip into apathy. Oh, the battle's been won, so I'm just going to like lay down and relax. We have to understand that we're at war, church. Too many Christians don't, I don't think they think about that. That we're at war. We, we live as though it's peacetime. We shouldn't. It's the dumbest thing to do. We live as though it's peacetime. We need to man the towers? No, it's peacetime. 
Do we need to pull 360 degrees security? No, it's peacetime. Do we need to, you know, practice using our weapons? No, it's peacetime. It's peacetime. We're okay. And many of us are just lulled into this false sense of security. That's not good. I think rather than living as though it's peacetime, Christians, we need to live as though we're in the middle of a war. And we will continue being in the middle of a war until the second coming of Christ, until the second advent. That has serious implications for us. We're at war, and the fact is, is we're so not prepared. Right? We come under attack. Oh, we're, we're under attack. What am I supposed to do when I'm under attack? We haven't been over that for so long. Oh, well, should we shoot back at them, right? And then we get our guns, right? And we start shooting, but we're like, wait, how do we use this again? Right? We draw our sword. The Word of God. The problem is, is man, we... <laughs> I haven't memorized verses since I was a kid. Or I haven't opened my Bible since, I don't know, last Sunday. And we go for our sword in the midst of this attack. And we're like, and it's like stuck. And I'm like, because we're living our lives as though it's peacetime. That will not do. That will not do. I've heard Pastor Dane share on many occasions how in the early church, the devil tried to come and destroy the church externally, like from the outside. And we see with the early martyrdom of Stephen. Of course, history has told us that the blood of the martyrs is the seed and growth for the church. And so after that, the devil, he tries to attack the church internally from within side, ripping it apart. We need to understand this, right? That... That this is not just an issue here in 64, 67 AD. This is an issue today that the, the implication of a wartime living is that we need to be doctrinally discerning. Which, if you've been here throughout this series, you may recall such a verse, such a plea for Timothy to be a good worker, one approved, no need to be ashamed, rightly handling God's word. You can't rightly handle God's word if you don't know God's word. We need to have this approach. If you want to be a vessel of honorable use of gold and silver, useful to the master, it begins right here. Understanding that we're, we're at war. Like the devil's real. And we make so many assumptions, right? Because everybody in this room right now hearing my voice, well, they must be a Christian. Why must they be a Christian? Or everybody that comes to small group Tuesday and Wednesdays, they must be a Christian. I'd ask you again, why must they be a Christian? (laughs) So many of us, we live not in a wartime Christian lifestyle, but in a peacetime Christian lifestyle, and we don't know God's word, and we're totally unprepared, and we're totally ill-equipped, and we're not doctrinally discerning. And then what happens? Well, these sorts of people are not avoided, and they creep in just as they did so many centuries earlier, and they prey on people within the church. We must have our wits about us, guys. We must know God's word. And we must live in a greater state of preparedness. Understand these things. As I said earlier, if we 
don't flee youthful passions, we will inevitably be led away by them. Oh, that we might persevere in our faith. I don't care whether it's not convenient. I don't care whether it doesn't work with your schedule. I don't care that you got a lot going on. Whatever those things that hold you back from the best thing, flee. Right? Oh, youthful passion, right? That thing that's keeping me from God's word, that thing that is keeping me from the people of God, that thing is keeping me from pursuing God in prayer, those are youthful passions. I don't know what it is. Those are youthful passions. It could be a hobby. It could be a, a boy or a girl. It could be any numbers, numbers things, guys. Flee those youthful passions. Pursue God no matter what, that we might strive and continue to be honorable vessels of gold and silver, useful. I want Christ to look at our lives and say, he's useful, she's useful. Not, he's worthless. Just coasting. Just doing the bare minimum. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love you, God, because you first loved us. That doesn't get old saying. Like, it doesn't. We love you because you first loved us. I thank you for your love. Lord, help us to be doctrinally discerning. So that when we come across maybe hard parts of Scripture, which, I don't know, doesn't settle well with our emotions, that we know how to deal with them. We don't just say, well, Paul can't, he can't be meaning what I think he's saying. No, that we deal with it. Make us more like you. Help us, Jesus. Protect us, God. Help some of us to just wake up. Some of us have just been living in this peacetime lifestyle, cruising in this comfortable version of Christianity that we've created for ourselves. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for us. Lord, help us to be honorable vessels, useful to you of gold and silver. And I get that this is hard. And what I'm saying is hard. Sometimes what I'm saying is near impossible. And so, God, I pray, pray, as St. Augustine prayed so long ago, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, enable us to do the things you've asked of us, you've required of us, even if they're hard, even if they're difficult, no matter, no matter what. Help us, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.